It's always fun to do episodes with friends. Jason and I became friends through Clubhouse, which was awesome at the time. Um, And not only is he a friend, but he is an unbelievably accomplished executive across the publishing industry. You guys are going to love it today. If you do love it, make sure to be a friend, tell a friend. It is the best way that you can help out. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the show. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, I've got Jason Wagenheim on the show. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Connor. Good to be here. Longtime listener, first time guest. I am really excited to have you on. It has been a long time coming. I'm trying to remember when we started our our clubhouse together with you, Corey, and friends. Was that like a year ago, two years ago? I feel like all time is blending. No concept of time anymore. And Clubhouse, that was so fun for a minute, wasn't it? I think I predicted that it was going to be a $10 billion company, which is why you should not listen to my predictions or most people's for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So for those that don't know you, I'm going to kind of brag about you for a second. So Jason was a chief revenue officer, took over as president as well for Bustle Digital Group. Prior to that, you were the CRO at Teen Vogue and Glamour. You were a publisher at Entertainment Weekly and Vanity Fair. I feel like you have really hit every major entertainment celebrity publication out there. It's it's really impressive. I'm blessed to have been at some great brands. I've been around the block a few times. I'm embarrassed uh, to say how old I am with that pedigree you just read off, but it is a big birthday this year. I'm going to be 50. I will tell you, not based on your appearance, but based on your resume, I was like, what is he going to say? I didn't know if you were going to say 60. I was like, in my head, I was like, 60? I was like, you didn't look 60. And he said 50. I actually think that's quite the resume for 50 years old. That's pretty wild. I'm, I'm still 49, Connor. I've got nine months. So don't <laughs> hanging on to 49 as long as possible. <laughs> and also, I should add, just for those that don't know, Bustle Digital Group. So collection of digital publications. You guys have over 100 million readers monthly. Um, which is wild. So Bustle, Elite Daily, The Zoe, Gawker, and obviously now you're competing with all your old friends, which has got to be fun. Yeah, it's been amazing. We've built a great business, portfolio holding company. I look forward to talking about it today. But digital media can be wildly successful and profitable if housed in an organization like ours with shared infrastructure. It's been a great ride. It's been six and a half years here and just really fun to build this, really fun to build this business. 100%. So let's take a step back in time. When I looked at your resume, the first thing that popped into my head was the Devil Wears Prada. And I don't know why, but that was the thing that popped up. So I looked it up. It debuted 2006. I was like, where was Jason when this movie came out? And in 2006, you were the executive director at Condé Nast, which oversees Vogue, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, which I think, frankly, is a lot of what that movie was modeled after. And so um, it's safe to say I think you were at the peak of that industry, right? Because that was a pretty seminal movie. How did that movie go over inside the walls of Condé Nast? Was that well-received? Were you allowed to watch it? It was at the time. I mean, this is pre-social, pre-mobile. It was a very real picture of what it was like to work at Vogue at the time. And the writer of that, I think her name was Lauren Weisberger, if I'm not mistaken. She was an assistant to Anna Wintour. And I don't know if everybody realizes that, but it was a really popular book that she wrote as almost this like fictitious take on her time at Vogue that became a movie and Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway. It was amazing. They nailed so many parts. I think what most people didn't really see uh, in that movie was more about the end of that movie when Miranda Priestly sort of has that moment and that wink and that nod to Anne Hathaway as she's going off to do her next thing. You saw some humanity that you didn't see in the prior hour and a half of that film. 
And Anna's fierce. She is um, the original girl boss. I have so much respect for her and everything that she's built. She's definitely, I think from what I hear from my friend still at Condé, she's definitely softened up in the last 15 years since that movie with her experience and wisdom that also comes with age. Um, yeah. But she, she's great. And I think there was a lot of satirical things that you could absolutely draw back to reality about what it was like at Condé Nast at that time. It was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of pressure and it was super serious. So the other thing I thought about when I was looking at your career was like you got to go through the kind of bloodbath transition from, you know, physical publishing to digital publishing. And I wanted to kind of look up the data. And I think right around that time that movie came out was when publisher revenue kind of hit its peak. It was about 46 billion at that time. And then just over the next, call it five, six years, it got cut in half down to about 24 billion. And then it started recovering since then. Um, what was it like to be at the center of that transition? What's it like when an industry goes through so much change in such a short period of time, specifically from outside? It wasn't like they made mistakes. It was like outside influences, really social media specifically kind of blew, blew up that business model for a little while. It did. And it's a critical time you're talking about in 2006, because I think the iPhone came out in either 2007 or 2008. The iPad was in 2009. Social media was around in 2003, 2004. Before that, with things like MySpace and other things. But Facebook really got big in like 04, right? Yeah. Um, the, the critical juncture for that change from consumption was not so much social media, but it was when social went mobile. And all of a sudden, you didn't need like a Canon point and shoot camera that had like 128 megabyte, whatever, a memory card, you had this really great camera that's gotten better in the palm of your hand that was also your phone that was also connected to the internet. You had apps, you had mobile websites, responsive design. That was the critical change. So once that started happening, the re-adjudication of what Condé Nast did or didn't do back in the early aughts was up for discussion. But what the mistake was at Condé Nast back in 2000, 2002, was launching brands like Style.com or Epicurious.com or Concierge.com. These were the internet homes of brands like Condé Nast Traveler, Vogue, GQ, um, Bon Appetit and Gourmet. And I don't think Condé Nast fully appreciated how well their brands could travel online if they just stuck to the brand. There was such fear that print would have massive attrition, advertisers would flee print for the internet, and let's protect our core business that's 99.9% .9 of our revenue by almost imagining the internet didn't exist for these brands and let's launch other things around it. And I'm mm -hmm. convinced that when we talked to Cy Newhouse in 2001 or two, we wouldn't have had a style.com. We would have had this powerhouse called Vogue.com. And we wouldn't have yeah. had Experience.com. We would have had Gourmet and Bon Appetit. Mm -hmm. And that was a critical mistake, was not embracing the internet quick enough while other companies just passed us by. I remember very specifically being the publisher of Teen Vogue in 2013 and watching this little upstart in Brooklyn called Bustle launch out of a brownstone with seven people as the tech bro internet like story typically goes. And I was banging my fist on the desk going, why are we allowing this little thing called Bustle, this piece of shit startup? <laughs> I mean, the amount of unique users, the engagement, the advertiser demand, all within two years was just epic. And I was like, how are we letting this happen? So it was an interesting time. We got really big on social first. If you think about influencers, you know, we were on Instagram first. We were on Snap first. We were on Facebook first as publishers. Publishers and editors are the original influencers. Yeah. Um, it was just a different form. It was ink on paper instead of a screen. I've never heard that take before, but it makes a lot of sense. Because if you think about it today, 
you think about like newyorktimes.com, like these have become very large digital assets, right? Sure. But again, at the same time, it's very difficult to kill the golden goose, right? It's very difficult to look at something that's making all of your revenue and to take out a piece of that. And they also wouldn't have known how to monetize it, right? It's like, okay, well, I put it online. Now people can access it for free, but I can't charge one-tenth what I was charging for the print publication. Yeah. Right? It was so wild west. I mean, when the iPad came out in 2009, we were charging advertisers $300,000 to be included in a PDF version of the magazine that you could read on the iPad, because that's all we really had to sell. And we thought that would be super interesting. We had no scale. We had no context. We didn't even know if readers were interested in reading a PDF of Vanity Fair on the iPad, but that's all we had to sell. So... Condé Nast and the legacy publishers could not accelerate digital growth as quickly as print was declining. And they yep. spent years writing the ship. And um, they're caught up. I mean, they're savvy digital businesses now. They're doing great in a lot of places. Yep. But it, it took longer, unfortunately. Yeah. Music obviously went through a similar kind of upheaval. And in some ways, it's not really anybody's fault. It's just what happens, right? It wasn't like Condé Nast was like the one that screwed up. It was like the whole industry got cut in half. Um, now, obviously, it's recovered. So another area that I think is really interesting right now, particularly when it comes to digital publishers. So Brian Sugar, who is the CEO and co-founder of Pop Sugar, with, along with his wife, Lisa, was a very early investor and advisor to Tribe. And so we've kind of paid attention to it more closely. Um, and I think over the last, call it 12 to 18 months, there's been an incredible amount of consolidation within that space, like at Vox, BuzzFeed, Group 9, Discover. So what do you think is driving that consolidation? And then do you think that continues moving forward? How do you think the industry shakes out over the next few years? It's a great question. And we're living in the middle of it. And I think let's just continue with the theme of a history lesson and go back in time because yeah. consolidation is not a new thing since, you know, there were etchings on caves tens of thousands <laughs> Go. Like companies consolidated, radio consolidated in the 40s and 50s and 60s, TV consolidated after that. The big broadcasters were rolling up with digital publishers, the telecom companies consolidated. Um, and it's just a natural progression of how industry works. The fact of the matter is, it's really hard to operate a small independent media company, whether you're a magazine or a website or a local radio station outside Cincinnati. So mm -hmm. consolidation is just a natural part of a business's life cycle or an industry's life cycle. We were an early adopter on the consolidation train back in 2015, 16, when we acquired Elite Daily. That was actually mm -hmm. early 2017. We gobbled up a lot of small publishers like the Zoe Report, Mike.com, Elite Daily. We acquired the Some Spider Studios properties, the parenting sites, Scary Mommy, The Dad, Fatherly. It's, it's a very natural thing that should continue to happen. It makes companies stronger. When you can have, like we do, 12 brands and 400 plus people in a company and shared infrastructure around sales, marketing, tech, the finance team, all the things it takes to make a company run well. And you can underpin an entire org with that infrastructure. All 12 of those sites have a much better chance of being successful from an audience profile, from an advertiser one, from just being well-run businesses. So I'm a big fan of the consolidation. It will continue to happen. Tough market right now. It's tough to be a media owner and want to sell your company because prices and valuations are just much lower than they probably should be. But it'll continue to happen. And we're a big fan of it. We've got a huge M&A strategy. There's lots of room for us to be acquired by the right suitor one day. It is a very weird time in the universe. I've been doing this more than 25 years. I've never experienced anything like the last three years. Yeah. And it's going to continue to be wacky. So I keep telling my team, keep your head down, avoid the noise and just do good work. The rest yep. will fall in place. 
like you said, going back in the annals of history, history rhymes. It doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And I mean, you look at the historical media entities like Condé Nast is a thing. It's a collection of publications. So it's logical that that would occur. Something I think a lot about, obviously, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? But, you know, we're in the influencer space. Influencers or creators are functionally just individual publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at the data on <laughs> Mr. Beast. His numbers have like grown 6x in the last two months. You have 1.8 billion views on his YouTube videos in the last 30 days. Just shocking numbers. So have you guys thought at all about acquiring individuals as publishers? Is that something you've explored at all? We've done it before. I mean, there were some influencers that created a handle called Please uh, on Instagram. It was a beauty born handle. We always said that if Allure or one of the big beauty brands was launching in 2015 or 2016, it would be an Instagram thing, not necessarily ink on paper or on any other platform. So we have gobbled up a few handles and a few influencers along the way. I think the bigger thing moving forward is this idea of a triangulation between content talent, experiential. Publishers are very well suited to create their own influencer networks or creator networks. We're frankly already doing it. And I think, you know, what drives me a little bit crazy with some of my top advertising partners is this idea of influencer and creator. It actually Mm -hmm. started with publishers. Publishers, like I said earlier, are the original influencer with editors and writers who scoured the world for the greatest destinations, clothes, food to eat, places to visit, things to do. And publish those in a format. And again, it was ink on paper, but that's what magazines have always been influencers. So when I talk to advertisers and they're like, oh, we're looking for somebody with a lot of reach on TikTok and we need somebody with a half a million followers on TikTok or Instagram. I'm like, BDG has like 30 million followers on Instagram and (laughs) Inverse alone has 5 million plus on TikTok. Like we're an influencer and we need to start getting the credit for it. Look, I remember a Teen Vogue, Bethany Moda. Do you remember Bethany Moda? Oh, One yeah. Of the, like, oh, yeah. 16-, 17-year-old girl living in Northern California, like babysitting or whatever she's doing on the side, starts making like fashion and haul videos and grows to like 10, 11 million followers in a couple years on YouTube. I remember like reaching out to her and others and saying, come do this party for us. We'll put you in the magazine. And they would be so psyched to be featured in Teen Vogue or so psyched to be part of some kind of Condé Nast event. Then a couple of years go by and... All of a sudden, they're bigger than us, and we have to call their agent at William Morris just to get a deal with them. We've created these monsters, and <laughs> well, it, it's just the format has changed. The, again, it's a screen. It's not ink on paper, um, but there's definitely a great relationship between publishers and influencers working together. And what's funny is the way that I've always described influencers, particularly to people that have kind of a longer or more traditional background in marketing, um, Think of them as publishers. I say this all the time. I'm like, they're no different than Glamour. Their goal is to build their audience. If they build their audience, they can charge more money for advertising. The way that they build their audience is by creating really cool editorial content and supplementing that with advertised content to pay the bills in addition to partnerships and otherwise. And so if you want to approach them, think about that. Think about them in that mindset, right? You're going to do a mix of editorial work, trying to get coverage in the editorial side of things, as well as advertising. And obviously, you know, if you're a big advertiser, you're going to get better access to the editors and some of these other benefits that you get. And, uh, and it's funny. So I describe it in the reverse direction. Like I'm talking to people that are looking at influencers and saying the same thing. And I think you have more experience than most people in the world, um, particularly on the sales and marketing side at integrating these new publications, right? So you go out, you buy fatherly, right? What is the challenge? Because obviously a lot of these people are entrepreneurs, right? That have run their own ships. 
Um, what are some of the challenges of doing that? And what do you think are some of the things that are most the most positively surprising? Like, oh God, I don't have to worry about finance anymore, right? What are those positives and negatives? Yeah, it's a great question, Connor. And you kind of nailed it where you went with it to start is like you have entrepreneurs in the form of founders who created incredible businesses and scaled them and raised money. And they had their vision that they had their team execute upon. And all of the founders who started companies that we launched, with the exception of Rachel Zoe, because she still kind of stays involved with the Zoe Report as editor at large. She does a lot of events and content for us. It's really hard and it's nothing personal, but like when you're rolling up as part of a bigger organization where there's another founder with his own ego and his own entrepreneurial spirit and his own vision, those things don't have to align and they typically don't and it's fine. What founders really want is for their brands and the businesses they started to end up in really good places with the future. And when we acquired Mike, we acquired Inverse, we love those guys, they were awesome founders, but it was hard to keep them on long-term. And with teams, yeah. the biggest challenge, frankly, is just the, the cultural disconnect. Like no company's created equal, no company has the same corporate culture, and you can't just buy a company with 100 people drop them in your office, tell them where the coffee maker and the bathroom is and expect everything to be okay. So we've acquired 13, 14 different properties in the six and a half years I've been here. It's crazy. It's like one every six months. That's wild. (laughs) You you, you learned a ton through it though. Like everyone comes with its own nuances. Not one looks like the other. And I think the most important thing is we've written a great playbook that's gotten better every time we've done it. Um, We're very, very patient with teams. We're very good about picking talent to stay and integrate. We can grow revenue by 30, 40% pretty quickly and and drop OPEX by 30%. So it it becomes very lucrative for the business. And I don't mean just profit, but I mean, we can run these things more efficiently. But I, I think the biggest lesson with integrations is patience. And some things work really well in a couple months and other things take a year to get right. And you have to take the long-term vision. You have to just think ahead of like, if we miss a quarter or two, or if this thing doesn't fire on all cylinders right away, it's okay. Let's look at the yeah. long-term. And Scary Mommy is a great example, the Sum Spider, the parenting brands. We had a couple missteps in the first three to six months. That thing is firing on all cylinders now, working really well, driving a ton of revenue for us. We love those brands, very supportive of them. And a lot of the people who we brought over are still with us and doing great. Yeah, we just went through our own acquisition about 15 months ago. And I think the first six months, we were killing it from a business perspective, right? Just crushing it. Um, But like, everybody was like, under the surface, it doesn't feel good. (laughs) And then then like the last six months, it's been like, I mean, I think Q3 was kind of a challenging quarter for everybody. Nobody knew it was happening. But it was like, you know, you have some like macroeconomic shocks and whatever. But like under the surface, it feels a lot better. It feels like things are really kicking into gear. It was a little behind on the numbers, right? Nothing huge. And so it's funny to have that long-term perspective. If there's a problem, we will figure it out and we'll move forward. You know, the ancient Wagenheim family proverb that goes back to Lithuania in the old country is everything's going to be okay. And if it's not, don't worry, we'll figure it out. And that's the way we have to approach this business. One of my favorite books is Who Moved My Cheese? It's like 40 pages long. It's about these mice that live in a labyrinth and the cheese is moving and Some mice find the cheese when it moves and other mice just look for it in the same exact place every day. And you know what? They die. And (laughs) it's this great story of surviving through change. And I bought 300 copies of it a couple of years ago. I gave it to every one of my people. I'm like, you're going to read this. It's 40 pages. Don't panic. And we talk about it a lot. Like those that are comfortable with change and embracing it and not hanging on to the way things were when we've acquired companies, the people who aren't with us anymore are the people who say a lot who start sentences often with something like, 
that's not the way we do that here, or that's not the way we used to do it, or that's not going to work because that's not what our company does. And I'm like, oh, it's not going to work for you. The cheese just moved, babe. Like you got to go find it. And if you can have that attitude in business and be comfortable with change, um, you'll survive and you'll be very, very successful to boot. Totally, totally. And I think particularly, I mean, you've gone through an industry where there's a lot of moving cheese, like over the last couple of decades. So you mentioned a founder earlier, that's Brian, right? Brian Goldberg. And it seems like he's got a little bit of a magic touch when it comes to publishing, whether it was Bleacher Report or Bustle, and obviously now all these acquisitions. Um, And what's his secret sauce? What makes him so good at this? You know, I thought when I was publisher at Teen Vogue that I was an entrepreneur because I was running my own business for Sign Newhouse and I just met with them quarterly and I could make decisions. I had a P&L to run. I'm like, I'm running my own business under Condé Nast. I'm not an entrepreneur the way you are, frankly, Brian is. To have that no fear, um, not listen to the noise and just go forward with all the thousands of no's you get before you get a yes is really the biggest quality that I admire about Brian. He's got real vision. And you have to think about somebody who disrupted the sports entertainment, sports journalism business the way he did with Bleacher Report in his 20s. And then turned Condé Nast, Meredith Hurst and all the big publishers on its head when he decided to be this like early 30 something tech dude from the Bay Area launching a women's lifestyle company called Bustle and taking on Glamour and Cosmo and all the other legacy brands. There was a lot of people that were naysayers and Brian just kept moving it forward with his vision and his strategy. He saw the need. He saw the opportunity to disrupt. And I think that really separates a really successful founder and entrepreneur like Brian from the rest. I remember having a conversation with one of my mentors and like, we were still figuring it out. You know, a year in, we were making a thousand dollars a month. We weren't making very much money. And uh, he he said, he's like, sometimes you got to know when to hang it up. And I'm like, "Mm, not today. And (laughs) I remember we had this favorite bar. So my co-founder and I lived together for the first three and a half years. And we had this favorite bar. It was a half Indian food restaurant, half Irish bar. So we're sitting there playing pool. And I remember telling him after a couple of beers, I was like, I don't give a shit. I was like, I'm going to drag this thing kicking and screaming into existence whether it wants to exist or not. That's what I'm going to do. And I think it, it takes some of that, right? You get courage, conviction, belief in your dreams. Um, that's the magic. You're another great example, what you did with Tribe. You, you saw a need on influencers and measurement and what the world wasn't getting, and you took advantage of that and had the courage and conviction to just go through, I imagine, all the thousands of people laughing in your face or the nose, doors shutting, to keep moving. I, I don't think you can learn that. I think that's a, a born quality. Well, let's talk about another impressive leader. So uh, we met through Corey Marchisoto, who's the CMO at Elf, and they are the best performing stock on the entire market in the last year, up 90% year over year, um, which is wild in this environment. And I think what that brings up that's interesting is for you, you've gotten to spend, again, as a CRO, as a publisher at some of the best publications in the world, you've gotten to work with some of the best marketers in the world, like Corey. And I'd be curious, just from an observational perspective, what you've observed about those advertisers, like what makes a Corey or somebody else so special, um, and especially if you can kind of identify it pretty quickly, like what do you see in there? You know, Corey has so many great talents and I, I adore her. She's a good personal friend. She's a very important client of ours. I know she is of yours as well. And what I think I admire most about Corey is the courage to dream 
and the ability to bring people together, to use her words, force multiply. Corey's very good at triangulating partners in her orbit and getting them to do amazing things together that they could not accomplish uh, individually. And we've been lucky enough to be along her side the last, like, gosh, four or five years now as a big publishing partner where we create so much great content, but we're constantly in touch with her agency partners, her in-house teams, the platforms directly, and working on her behalf. And at the end of the day, she doesn't have L'Oreal budgets or Estee Lauder budgets, but you would think with what that woman and that company has accomplished under her leadership on the marketing team the last four years she's been there, you would think she had the most massive budgets on the planet. And I so respect her ability to bring the right partners in the room and do incredible things. Um, and what also comes with that, that some CMOs at really big public companies fear is risk. And Corey is completely risk adverse. She learns from mistakes. She picks her people up when they fail and pushes them forward. She is the first to cheer us and her internal teams along when they are successful. And my friend Craig Brommers at American Eagle is a great CMO. Tara Kassan at McDonald's and Brommers at Eagle. Um, they have the same qualities of like navigating uncertain times and taking calculated risks that pay off and triangulating partners together. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Corey calls me with the most crazy shit and I'm just like, <laughs> that's never gonna happen. And it it does because she puts it in the universe and makes it happen. And she gets like the Pied Piper, everybody to follow along. And it's a pretty magical thing to be part of and to be inside her orbit. And um, there's a handful of CMOs that have that magic touch. And she's definitely one of them. I remember our first event we did I was like, I think we need to do an event in New York. I was like, I know a lot of people there. I think it'll be a good time. And team was like, oh, great. Yeah. When are we going to do it? Like a few months. I'm like, no, like three weeks, two weeks. We're going to do it. I'll get it done. We'll get it going. Or like, there's another time where the pandemic happened. So everything in person got shut down. And I had seen somebody do like a virtual summit, like a bunch of speakers, which it was pretty innovative at the time. And I was like, fuck it. Let's do it. Two weeks. We got it. Got it done. I think we had like 40 or 50 speakers. It was like, really cool right and so i'm a big subscriber and corey i think in the interview we did with her it's a big subscriber she moves fast and it's like okay if it doesn't work out um on the craig front i actually hadn't met craig until this podcast that was the way that i met him i didn't know him before that i mean they're killing it too their numbers are, are wild. rushing it rushing it and these yeah. guys have longevity and i think the average lifespan of a cmo a career span i should say is like two years or 1.9 years and these guys have survived that and they will continue to um, because, you know, Corey will call me and she'll be like, okay, here's the deal. You got a second? I'm like, sure. She's like, I want to put a billboard on the moon. I want to stand in front of it. Alicia Keys is going to perform. Elon Musk is going to get us a rocket. We're going to like take 10 influencers and we're going to do the first ever TikTok from the moon. And you're just like, wait, what? And then you have to take it seriously because you know what? It's probably going to happen. She just has that power. And, um, most of her stuff works really, really well. Some of it doesn't. And she learns from those mistakes and those risks that she may have taken to make it better the next time. So obviously marketing, publishing is a big part of your background, but in sales is as well, right? A big part of your career and also a big part of your blood. So I think I heard the story of your dad being like a fax machine salesman back in the day when that was like a totally new technology. So when you think about sales and the role that's played in your life and what it's taught you, um, but what are those? Why would you advise somebody to get that background earlier in their career? 
I think it's such a terrific career. I'm an accidental salesperson. I, I went to college for journalism and writing, and I started a student magazine in South Carolina that's still publishing. I was editor-in-chief of the school newspaper. I had dreams of going to GQ and other big magazines and following that dream to be a writer. And I sort of just landed in a marketing role in News Corporation, my first job out of school. Didn't even know what it was. I was designing coupons for the Sunday inserts, the FSIs that uh, News Corp published at the time under nice. a company called America. And um, I got the sales bug right away and found the right mentors and companies and had just great brands that I got to work for. I was one of the first online ad director for Maxim.com in 1999. And I think what I love most about sales is every day is different. It's about problem solving. It's about critical thinking. It's about trying to convince people to take money out of their pockets that they may not even know is there and getting them to spend <laughs> And it's a lot of fun. And I think what I love most about it is the trust I've been able to build for myself and for our company and for our people over the years. It's really the trust that people have in you. And we make a really, really big deal at BDG about customer service. And the internet is a wild and complicated place that is changing by the minute. When somebody decides to spend 500000 or a million or $2 million with us, I don't want to mess yeah, up. Yeah, totally, totally. Trust their money. So what are the things and who are the people that we can have in our orbit to make sure that our clients can trust us? And when you have that kind of relationship, it's really satisfying. And um, it, of course, also leads to renewals and really great relationships that you take with you everywhere. It's a great business. It's a frenetic business. There's mayhem. No day is the same. And I think that's really exciting. I mean, that perspective, right? That approach, though, is really important. The long-term thinking there, right? It's not just about getting somebody to buy from you. But it's actually about having that be successful because that's actually where the long-term value is, right? Is you build these relationships with people that are mutually beneficial in which you're helping them get done what they want to get done. And I know that for me, I remember this phrase I always really liked, it's better to become friends because of business than to do business because you're friends, right? Um, and it's like, I've had sales conversations with friends. It's like, I don't want to do that. That feels weird. Right. But then when you like become friends with somebody, it's like, oh, wow, we've done a podcast together and we've done this and we've done that. And we've helped you do this and that. And then you become friends because of that success. That's I think pretty cool. And really my best relationships with the Corey's and the Craig's of the world are we've been through the ups and downs of business together. And I always take the long view. I've never once called any of them and said, I can't believe you're not giving me this campaign for this month for a hundred thousand dollars. It's over. Yep. I take the long view and when they have money to spend and the opportunities line up and we can deliver a product for them, we work together. And when we don't, um, that's okay too. When you establish and build that kind of trust and relationship, it's so much bigger than any $1 that you might bring in or not. So the other thing that, again, just thinking about what makes you special, you, know, you spend a lot of time in this kind of CRO role, which a big portion of that is overseeing kind of sales while we're on this topic. And I think one of the more difficult transitions for people is to go from really successful salesperson to successful sales leader, just very different kind of skill sets. So what do you think are the ingredients that make a successful CRO? It's a great question because I've seen so many great sellers fail as managers. And the story typically goes like this, killer seller, crush their numbers, got the salesperson of the year trophy and a big bonus because they were up 100%. They crushed it. And you don't want to lose that person. And that person wants to climb. And they have every right to want to climb. And you make them a manager. You make them a VP. You make them an SVP, whatever, because you're afraid to lose them. And you're afraid to lose that magic that they brought as an IC, as an individual contributor. And 
the sellers who are very, very successful are the ones who can put every single one of their problems aside and solve everyone else's problems. Yes. When you are an individual contributor, you are CEO of yourlist.com, right? You're just running your business and you have hundreds of people. But when you're the boss, when you're a CRO and you're the VP or you're running a team, you have to put everything aside and solve everybody else's problems. And you have to be empathetic and you have to understand everybody's point of view when there's drama internally and really look at everything through their eyes. And people that can do that, and I think it's a human quality that, again, maybe it's something you're born with. I think it's hard to learn. When you're an empathetic leader, when you can lead from behind, when you don't have to be you know, the hero and you can let other people do that, really put your ego aside. That's the difference in a successful leader. Um, I love to push our people forward. That sort of um, empathy or compassion that you might have for the way others view the world is a difference maker if you're going to be successful or not. And um, I've unfortunately had some situations where I've lost some really good people because they didn't get that and they couldn't see the world through a manager's eyes. They can only see it through me, me, me. And that's the fundamental difference. Yeah. It's funny because my early career was in sales. And I was like the number one guy just by one number one person by revenue, a good margin for a while um, and had a similar ambition, right? Like, oh, I'm killing it. I'm getting all the trophies. Like I want to go up. And that actually like, eventually led to me starting Tribe because I was like, nah, I'm going to do it myself. And so we did that. And then I ended up having two thirds of the company reporting into me, right? But I was gone half the time or doing other things, et cetera, just wasn't available. And so we ended up pivoting all kind of internal ownership under my partner, John. And I was like, I'll do all external fundraising, thought leadership, top clients, all the stuff you need executive presence in, I will do, and I'll do it really well. And it's been like a real philosophical issue I've had to think a lot about in terms of myself personally. Is this personally how I get fulfillment? Or do I get more fulfillment from racking up the trophies? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure. Whenever we brought in a new VP, I was like, what's your plan? It's like, I'm going to listen to everybody, solve all their problems. And he built so much loyalty that way, right? All he did was ask me what their problems were and solve them. That's how he started and ended his day. And it just reminds me so much of the way that you're talking about things. There's a great book called The 90-Day Plan or The 100-Day Plan or The First 100 Days. It's one of those 90-plan books. I think the guy's name is Michael Watkins. I mean, you can fact check me on this if you want. Put it in the notes. But um, I ask a lot of my leaders to read it because somebody asked me to read it 15 years ago. And the most important thing when you come into an organization for the first 30 days is to shut up and just listen and observe and not come in with opinions, understand who your allies and enemies are, look for the pitfalls in the company, really just study and be a student and find some wins. And a win doesn't have to be a big win on a deal. It could be like, you literally help somebody get a meeting or you took something off their plate to make their day a little lighter. And I really, you know, subscribe to that theory of listen, learn, understand the environment and then attack. And then you pick your spots where you're going to go and try and make some impact. Um, I think the most successful leaders and people that transition are just really great observers and students, and they can pick their spots accordingly once they understand the lay of the land. You talk about fulfillment. I mean, I've, not to derail the conversation, but I think as I'm heading toward my golden years, um, I think that the most fulfilling thing for me has really been overpronounced during the pandemic, and that is the importance of my team's wellness and, and mental well-being. It's a very weird time in the world and business, and all the other outside factors in the universe are impacting us directly, whether it's supply chain or war in Ukraine or inflation or recession or shitty holiday sales. Like It all trickles down to how people spend money in advertising. And 
through it all, I want really smart people who can be critical thinkers and solve their own problems, but I want them getting out of bed every day and feeling really, really great about coming to work, no matter how tough work is. And that's what fulfills me now. It's not the trophies or whatever. It's having a team and a culture where people feel fulfilled. And that's fun to have that vision now and not just have it be about the rat race and the money. So I want to skip to the last question, the fun end of show question, because okay. there's another way that you're fulfilled that I know of, which is barbecue, which also <laughs> fulfills me, <Love. laughs> not as a producer, but as a consumer, where did this love for barbecue come out? And then I mean, I think you had your own brand for a little while. Talk to me about barbecue. It's cool. You know, uh, this is another kind of pandemic thing, but um, I love barbecue. I went to school in South Carolina. I'm a Jewish kid from New Jersey. He's not like necessarily in my blood, but I, I love barbecue. I love the science of it, studying it, the relationship between fire and smoke and meat. I just, I dig it. It's fun for me. And my friends, I'd have these big barbecues at my house with like 50, 60 people. And they're like, you got to open your own restaurant. I'm like, that's stupid. Nobody's ever done that who was a CRO and actually made money. I have dental insurance that I need and like a real job. But I could bottle this sauce and I make my own sauce. And I started a brand called East End Cowboy. You can go to eastendcowboy.com and check it out. We use all local ingredients from all the great local farmers on Eastern Long Island. And we put it back in the jar as a sauce. Um, it's a super small batch bespoke thing. And the fun part of the story is I was just doing like a couple cases at a time as a hobby. And Citarella, which is a big gourmet store in the New York City area, they've got stores in the Hamptons in Connecticut, um, slid into my DMs one day. They heard people were talking about my sauce, and I sent some samples to this guy in the Bronx. And two months later, I got a purchase order for 150 cases, Connor. And I'm oh, like, shit. I know how to make three cases at a time. I don't know how to make <laughs> But sure enough, I figured it out and I work out of a commercial kitchen. A buddy of mine banged out 150 cases over like four days and um, it's taken off. It's a hockey stick on the revenue and it's a side hustle. It was an accidental uh, business that just sort of happened. And it's been super fulfilling to have some balance and something else, you know, that work has defined me for so long and it's been my number one thing. And now to have something else I do for me is pretty great. And I'm a big fan of the side hustle and having that kind of balance. So what's the secret to the sauce? What do you do that's different? You know, it's made with a lot of love, a lot of tender love. <laughs> literally, I, Connor, I'm not joking. I literally am <laughs> 12 ounce jars of barbecue sauce by myself in a kitchen. And I've got this buddy of mine that helps me. Um, it's just the great local. We have a honey peach. We use local peaches, local honey. Ah. It's, it's a thing. It's real. We're going to take on Kansas City and Austin and all the great barbecue towns. I'm, uh, I'm going to have to buy some. I'm definitely awesome. going to buy some now. Well, Jason, I really appreciate you taking out the time. I've got another 50 questions I could ask you, but uh, we'll have to have you on again in a couple of years. So glad we got to meet and uh, excited to see where you and BDG go. It's, Thank it's you, Connor. Big congrats to you and all the great work you guys are doing. Um, I'm a big fan and I love what an advocate you are for your own industry and, and that you do this. So thanks so much. Be a friend, tell a friend and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.